listen to me. Trader, I believe that you've received the death message from our ninja empire. Ninja is supreme and you have double-crossed him. Why did you do that? I have to reform the ninja empire. That is why I took away it. That is why I took away it. The golden ninja warrior. The golden ninja warrior. You've got three days in which to return the golden ninja warrior. Right? Or else you die. What, what, what, what is that? Or else you die. Go, go, go to hell. Welcome to the Golden Ninja Podcast 10 on Silver Dragon Ninja and Ninja Killer. And Thomas Tang's film arc is the focus of this 10th episode where we look at something you could describe as ninja business as usual, which is contained solely to Hong Kong. And I'll explain what that means. But it comes to you in the form of Silver Dragon Ninja. And that was my pick. But Ed Glazer's pick was this... Uh, off my radar type of pick which is why i encouraged it to really be on the show therefore called ninja killer and it represents film arc cutting and pasting but not yet maybe if you look at the timeline focusing on the market power of a westerner therefore we get an old movie but the new footage is with local hong kong talent in this case carter wong and bolo young merges with something old partly from turkey out of all things. So we're going to explain uh, We're going to explain the Turkish connection. And it may be called Ninja Killer, but ninjas are definitely not guaranteed to show in this one. So uh, we, we got ninjas represented for the first half, merely, essentially. So come out from hiding behind the car, Neon Harbor's Ed Glazer. This is not how you merge with a podcast, by hiding and looking at it from afar. Like, you can't be film arc, buddy. So <laughs> come, come out from the car and welcome. Hello, hello. Uh, I just have one question for you. Where's Roger Kimsky? <laughs> oh my god, I, I think I've neglected that from that quote from my notes, and I'm gonna make sure I find it now when I insert my little funny, uh, funny movie quotes into the edit. But uh, uh, you know, for Ninja Killer, you're gonna have to remind me if there was any funny quotes in that one. I couldn't find any. It's not a very funny movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I don't know that I have any as well. Actually, I, I wrote down a bunch from. Uh... Uh, Silver Dragon Ninja, but Kinski is like a very classy name. Was it literally Kinski a la la Klaus? Kinski. I think I think it was Kimski with an M, but Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to step on on Klaus Kinski. He's gonna come and beat the crap out of you if you (laughs) if you say something that annoys him. So that guy's crazy. You don't have many of these characters anymore. Like today, we have characters at best jumping on sofas on primetime talk shows, and that that's pretty much it. We don't have any any of these people who just explodes for no apparent reason <laughs> i think you worked on this like we're off track but whatever you worked on this Werner herzog movie where he snapped because of some catering issue or some crap like that and there was a documentary crew catching all of that klaus kinski just off his rocker complaining about oh, something that man. didn't matter that much but uh, hey it's uh, it's uh, the proof is in the Autistic merits, you know what I mean? Because he brought autistic merits, so there it is. But mm-hmm. then we we don't have Kinski, but we have Kimski, as uh, as you alluded to. But how are things over in Neon Harborland at Glazer? Doing uh, very well as winter as winter comes upon us. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's a uh, we're recording close to uh, close to winter, so it's uh, we're gonna attempt a little cozy, cozy uh, little year uh, end of year podcast for us as recorded. Uh, but uh, having mentioned Neon Harbor, for people who don't remember, uh, you have that site, of course, but you have a little bit of Turkish con- Turkish connection every now and again, which I think is uh, folk uh, sort of relegated to, or it resides mostly within Deja View. So if you want to plug your site and describe Deja View again for listeners, that would be awesome. Sure. So yes, um, you can find uh, my stuff at neonharbor.com, which includes a comedy web series called Ninja the Mission Force, which spoofs the, uh, the kind of uh, cut and paste IFD and filmark stuff that we tend to cover on this show. But one of my other series is a nonfiction show called Deja View, which looks at uh, foreign remakes of popular american films and some of my absolute favorites are from turkey if you want to see things that are sort of along the kind of lines that we cover in ninja killer uh, you may find some interesting stuff uh, like uh, the turkish star trek uh, turkish godfather and uh, a number of others excellent excellent and uh that's uh, what we're going to link to in the show post, and I'll just do the contact information uh, for the rest of the network really quickly. And this is the Golden Ninja Podcast on the Podcast on Fire Network. And we are located on podcastonfire.com, where you'll find this show, other shows on Hong Kong cinema, Japanese cinema, Korean cinema, even sleazy cinema, and a selection of bonus episodes exclusive to the website. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is podcastonfire at googlemail.com. And if you check out the site, there's some handy, colorful buttons leading to our Facebook page, which in turn will lead you to our discussion group that you're very welcome to join, as well as our Twitter and our iTunes feed. And if you want to rate us on iTunes, you're very welcome to leave a comment. That's even more welcome. And you can also subscribe to us to have the podcast delivered to you promptly. And there's a link to our Stitcher radio streaming page online as well. And they have an application available on the Apple App Store and Google Play if you want to stream this show and any other show on the network. And uh, furthermore, I write about, uh, among other things, these kind of cut-and-paste ninja movies at SoGoodReviews.com and my video hub where I post my small video reviews. Nothing at all akin to Ed's productions. I keep it very simple because that's all I know. So you'll find my stuff at SleazyKVideo.com. Like, I'm not going to appear on camera anytime soon. That's You're going to have to represent the bravery between us as a duo like you because you do your stuff on camera and that's way more admirable and uh, and cool you know the funny thing about that is that actually um i'm looking at doing some future episodes of deja vu where i probably won't appear on camera because i realize that honestly i think people would rather see uh clips of the movie that i'm talking about rather than uh my mug on screen so i think i might be actually relegating more of the video essay like component to audio I would understand that because you, you'd you want to change the format, but just rest assured, the format works because it's got your brief intro and your brief outro, uh, which always comes with, sort of, if you can find one, always comes with a word pun of sorts to uh, to cap it all off. So um, I'll, I guarantee you that the format is okay, but uh, if you want to save uh, save yourself some work by not setting up lights and the, ca- and the camera and just, uh, uh, just focus on voice and the clips, the show will still be strong, so... Like you win regardless, Ed. 
<laughs> so there it is. Uh, SleazyKvideo.com is my video hub. As I said, my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. And furthermore, and the last plug goes out to our good friend Jesus Perez Molina, who helped out a little bit for this episode. He has a blog that is not updated currently because uh, he's just finished his book a couple of months ago. So he probably wants his rest. It's a book that I always... I can't for life of me remember if it's called Golden Ninja Operation or Golden Ninja Invasion. <laughs> so I'll put both of them out there. But it's a, a book in Spanish about the IFT history about, and uh, about Captain Pace ninjas. A, a more, an actual authority, someone who knows his crap, wrote a book about this, which I think is wonderful. And uh, by all accounts, it's been well received. And who, know, who knows in the future, it might get an English translation. So we can certainly hope for that. But I'm happy enough to know we finally reached that point that where there's a proper book with proper information about these things. A book that doesn't, from the get-go, say, hey, do you like Godfrey Ho's robo-vampire? You know, mm-hmm. Jesus is not going down those routes because he knows better. And uh, so uh, big ups to Jesus for that. And his, Not to get too stuck on this, but uh, I do want to say you don't find many good guys out there who is willing to share information. Uh, some people are guarded. When, because they think information is going to be exploited, but Jesus knows that it's these movies, man. It's Silver Dragon Ninja. Like, why be guarded about uh, information that uh, that can be shared by many and uh, therefore missing for can be corrected? Like, there, there's no reason to sit on any exclusive stuff if it means it's going to be corrected if it's let out in the world. So uh, that that is all rational. Ed. There's irrationality galore out there on the web in terms of uh, information and uh, truths about uh, the cinema at hand. So, so, so big ass to Jesus for that. Absolutely. All right, all right. All. Let's uh, take a short uh, musical break. Uh, some um, stolen music from Silver Dragon Ninja. Just guarantee it is stolen. All of that wonderful synth uh, music that they put in there. Listen to that. And after that, we'll be back to give you a uh, brief rundown of what's to come. But uh, mainly we jump into the Silver Dragon Ninja section. So sit tight and we'll be back. So, welcome back, and before we get to the Silver Dragon Ninja, we're going to give it a rundown uh, of what's to come, because we have a few sections, and not just reviews at hand, so I will list what is coming now, and then list the running times in the show post, in case you want to jump ahead to any preferred section. And these will also be in the show post on the website, and they also turn up in the iPhone podcast application, if you click the show out. But uh, only if you download shows, though, uh, though not uh, stream shows, for some reason it doesn't, so... That might be something I am doing wrongly, but regardless, it's there if you download it. So we start with the Silver Dragon Ninja section that is initiated with a little biography of lead actor Paolo Tocha. And that is then followed by our review of the movie. There will be a break after that, and then the Ninja Killer section takes center stage, starting with Ed Glazer's bio on Turkish leading man, whose name I'm going to butcher now, uh, Kunyet Arkin. Uh, Junaid Arkan. Junaid Arkan. There, there you go. I'm just going to insert your uh, voice. or Just just dub over you. Yeah, exactly. I like it. 
All right, and uh, Bayov him, the lead of uh, many, uh, many or a couple of these uh, Turkish exploitation movies, Turkish Star Wars lead, for instance. And it all concludes with our, with our review of Ninja Killer, which features the man himself. But uh, let's do Silver Dragon Ninja first of all, and plot from my review of the film that goes as follows. With little alterations to the original movie, we start with uh, Jerry, played by Harry Kane, which is actually Paolo Tocha. His AKA in this one is Harry Kane. He's of the White Ninja Clan. He has arrived in Hong Kong to stomp out the attempt at the dominance of the Black Ninja Clan. Have you heard this plot before? That's because Philmark and IFD were very fond of Black Ninja Clan versus White Ninja Clan. But the latter, the Blacks, have hired an assassin called Turkey. Wow, I didn't realize we have a connection between the movies. Someone's called mm-hmm. Turkey. <laughs> He's played by Lao Hock Nin from the original Hong Kong movie. He's there to take out the witness that might stand in the Black Ninja Clan's way. It's up to Cop Allen, played by Pai Ying, to bring these uh, associates of the Black Ninja Clan to justice. Main target being Mark Mo, played by Kenneth Tsang. Who in turn, along with the ninjas, this is a cut and paste movie after all, will do anything to make sure Alan gets off their back. Jerry the ninja, again Paolo Tocha, also sends in Jane undercover to get close to Mark Mo. Now I might be wrong, but I was I, I thought I heard that the main character's name was Alex rather than Alan. And of course it's confusing because this is a cut and paste movie where they changed the names from the original film, which was also dubbed and you might you might be right, and it it might be due to sometimes this. Like, I'm making excuses here, but regardless, you you're probably right. And sometimes the sound quality of these movies are so poor, so it's kind of like Al, well, Alan. It sounded like Alan. I'm going with Alan. So yeah, well, and, and you know what? It's it's worth bringing up because uh, in my summary of the next film, I am absolutely guessing on some of these names for the exact same reason. I've seen at least the Turkish leading man's name on another website also being Charles, which I think was yours. So, so, so, so I, I think you're onto it. At least you're not saying it's Charles when it's Steve in actuality. Right, right. Like you're, you're still trying to get it right. So that's the main point. Uh, but that's the plot. Uh, a little bit of background. Phil Mark eyed something out of Hong Kong to combine ninjas with something IFD rarely did. I only know of one example where they acquired a source movie from Hong Kong. IFD were based in Hong Kong, as were Filmok, and the source movie for Kickboxer from Hell, which is a wonderful... You know, you don't need to know anything about that movie yet, right? It's Kickboxer from Hell. I hope it's exactly the movie I'm imagining in my mind. It is horror-tinted, because because the source movie is a 70s Hong Kong horror movie. It's the only one I can think of where IFD sourced one and it's probably something they just either it was too expensive to work from within hong kong or they just had their picks of taiwanese and thai movies uh, to keep them busy for a while and maybe when the kickboxer era entered and also the cut and paste era started to dwindle maybe they had to look from within as well but uh, kickboxer from hell is uh, is uh, good good very profane stuff that we're gonna get to eventually the movie that they got is 1982's Trap, a.k.a. Cop Killer, directed by Ang San. And uh, I've only seen his Category 3 rated erotica drama Loving Sam Pan from about 10 years later. He's worked li- mostly worked as a stuntman and action director throughout his career, including on Trap, uh, which marked his fourth movie as uh, director and fourth since 1980. So he worked uh, at a good pace uh, from 1980 up until 
1982, which wasn't unheard of in Hong Kong cinema to get four movies under your belt because producing movies at that time was uh, quite a fast affair. Now, why didn't they ever add ninjas to Category 3 erotica? Because that would make this show way better. Sorry, that would make the research for this show. Like, my mind, my mind is, like, going in uh, 100 miles per hour. He's right. Why didn't they do it? Why? Why? Why? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm confused now. I, I don't know. Maybe they, would do, they, they wanted to be adult, but not as adult all the time. Right, You know, right. because we had a couple of source movies, like the um, original movie for Ninja Thunderbolt features some quite uh, steamy sex scenes and stuff like that. So, uh, maybe, you know, what I think it is in all reality, I think that it doesn't support the timeline, because... In nineteen ninety three, ninety four, that was the explosion of period erotica and violent category three movies with sex and stuff like that in Hong Kong. And I, and I think IFT were kind of out of the game by nineteen ninety three, nineteen ninety four. Um, so that might explain it. But if they'd gone on, maybe we would have seen these movies combined with uh, you know both good stuff in the form of ninjas and good stuff in the form or kickboxers or and good stuff in the form of uh, fairly lame sex scenes. Mm-hmm. There it is. Good, good, good thought. And then now my mind is going to be busy about what could have been. Paolo Tocha. You might not know the name watching these movies because he's not named Paolo Tocha on screen here. He's Harry Kane, <laughs> which is a wonderful generic name. Like that could have been his character name for all, as well. Like Harry. Did, was was someone like a fan of the of the um, uh, Ipcris file and and the sequels because uh, it's like a Michael Caine uh, sort of combo of Michael Caine the actor and then the character he played in those movies um, Harry Palmer is it you know what I wouldn't be surprised if that is the connection uh, which is a uh, good you know putting fandom to good use you know <laughs> but uh, Harry Caine and he was actually credited as something else at IFD he worked at IFD for a movie or two Bruce Stallion he stands around mostly in Ninja Operation Night and Warrior that's why we didn't talk of him then but he's uh, one of the henchmen of um, Stuart Smith and he stands around a little bit in the background but he's credited as Bruce Stallion so who knows if they drew a little bit of sly Stallone, the Italian Stallion connection to in terms of coming up with his name there. But, I uh, think so. Yeah. Uh, it is the 80s after all, so there it is. Paolo grew up, grew up in Mozambique, South Africa, and he's half Portuguese, half Italian, there you go, and by now American. He was in a gang during turbulent times in South Africa, but eventually left that world behind to sort of save himself, uh, really. And he started studying boxing at the tender age of nine as a countermeasure, really, as a trainer offered him to do that instead of being, you know, beating up people on the street and being beat up uh, himself. And soon an attraction to Muay Thai boxing began and he embarked on a career that saw him fighting all over all over Asia in the 80s and in his own words because he you know he didn't care about the money being on the circuit uh, the, the money that came with uh, fighting on the circuit and his quotes in all simplicity and I think this is very says a lot about him as a character so quote I fought to learn which is a le- very level-headed for someone uh, someone young. So there it is. His movie credits starts as early as the 80s, and um, apparently Paolo was in Hong Kong director Johnny Wang's violent cult classic Hong Kong Godfather. He's probably uh, one of many people that get slashed violently in that uh, blood-soaked Shaw Brothers movie. It's, it's very good. If you can find that movie, it was on US DVD. Go check out Hong Kong Godfather. It's a um, wonderful modern action massacre at Shaw Brothers. And uh, he then scored lead roles in uh, Phil Mark's uh, Captain Paste Ninja Action Pictures Clash of the Ninjas, 
which is an awesome movie. We got to cover that. I don't know if you've seen Clash of the Ninjas. Uh, first of all, do you remember? I don't remember. It's it's likely that I've seen it, but um, the names all blend together, so it has to really, really like stand out and connect with the name in order for me to remember it. I totally do. I, I agree, and uh, that's um, it gets hard, but it's going to be even harder watching that because that is one of the Filmok movies where you're going to have a tough time, and I still have a tough time finding what is the Filmok footage, what is the original footage, because I think that production used the source movies actors to an agree to shoot new footage because he appears with the actors that you see in the old footage is totally confusing and therefore an intact illusion awesome it is awesome and it's a fun movie too so there we there we are i, I was watching it because oh here we go here's there wait a minute those guys were god damn it phil mark you're doing my head in well, well done you know well played whoever directed that so there it is he was the lead in that and here in silver dragon ninja where they clearly, you know, saw an able fighter and uh, therefore he got to elevate those films to a degree we rarely see in terms of action. Even though action could be brief, you know, Paolo Tocha, he could bring some uh, quality um, and therefore not be doubled extensively. He appeared in a more high-profile movie uh, subsequent to this around 1989 that would jumpstart the kickboxing craze as he played Paco in the Jean-Claude Van Damme vehicle blood sport. Don't remember him from that movie. It's been like 15 years since I've seen Bloodsport, but it was done in Hong Kong and he was around in Hong Kong, so that makes sense uh, too. Uh, further credits include Somewhere He's in Predator 2. Again, I think I saw that in 1992. <laughs> so it's, uh, and, uh, like, uh, I loved it, but I haven't really watched it since. He's in Stone Cold as well as in the live action adaptation of the uh, anime Fist of the North Star. But he never left his uh, fighting roots behind. He continued to train and uh, train other people in Muay Thai all over the world. And he was the first American to be elected into the World Member Council of Muay Thai and is or was vice president of the Association of the United States of Muay Thai. If this is recent or not, I can't confirm, but Toka has relocated to Hollywood where he uh, teaches his uh, Muay Thai, but he has also put his uh, mind and devotion to humanitarian causes, uh, including working with GAP. Uh, which is Gang Alternatives Program in Los Angeles and uh, really seems like a decent man who extends the favors given to him that saved his life back in the day and he wants to further that uh, further that favor to uh, troubled, uh, troubled youngsters. So a um, level-headed man and a very admirable life story. So that's Paolo. Let's uh, talk of uh, his... Um his sporadic appearances, but he is the lead in Silver Dragon Ninja, so I'll leave it to you, Ed, to give us your brief opinion of Silver Dragon Ninja, so the floor is yours. I thought that the new footage was uninspired. It mostly consists, as you mentioned, of Paolo Toka on the phone, uh, talking to other people who are not on the phone in other footage, so it's just him saying, uh, hey, you need to go do this thing, great, okay, bye. bye. <laughs> <laughs> you're right you're right but when all is said and done like when all things are merged like is it fun though it's not one of my favorites i think the original film the source film is a pretty standard kind of revenge movie mm -hmm. and if you dig the hong kong revenge movie kind of deal it is absolutely one of those uh, what i find interesting is what they do to it when they adapted it to this cut and paste format because certain plot points are just completely erased or they would like you to think that they are erased, but in fact, remnants are 
are confusingly there. Right. Well, that, that's a good setup for um, for the discussion to come here. And uh, for my brief opinion, uh, it's a bleak cops and robbers uh, thriller, as uh, mentioned, with revenge elements, as Ed said. The, the connection between the ninja footage and uh, the old footage is... Uh, they may feature sort of action elements on paper, but they also so unconnected and it's very uninspired the way they sort of merge them. But um, and and Thomas Tang and company can't match the viciousness of the original, nor do they really try. Because it is standard like get the Black Ninja Clan, we are the White Ninja Clan, and some fights, and then the movie ends. You know, you you can't really win versus the old footage when your ninja plot reeks more of goofy than bleak but uh, you know I, I do have fun with it uh, despite the total ninja tally if you will is uh, fairly entertaining for my money's worth i will give them credit for this the way the way that they integrate the ninjas into the source footage um by simply like putting them in and having them hide behind cars and stuff is actually pretty well integrated it's silly but you might believe that it is actually happening I agree. It, it's it's silly, and, it's, and they do merge themselves with sort of the more harrowing elements too of trap. And uh, we'll we'll get to some specifics, even if it's sort of spoilery. But you know what? One of the biggest delights for me uh, watching Filmark movies that is was the rotating cast with IFD. That cast was mostly set, uh, but at Filmark you can have a new leading man next movie. Because they didn't keep them on as much as Richard Harrison or Mike Abbott and even Mike Abbott and Stuart Smith appeared every now and again at uh, Filmwalker. So I, I kind of just like that because they, they employed those in need of work, whether they were aiming for movie work or not. And therefore you're going to have a talent pool. You know, it's un, it's uneven. They weren't looking for work in movies, but they were sort of striking enough to be the westerner of the movies. So you're going to get uneven and blank performers like our opening scene shows, Ed. I mean, it's not charisma overload in the opening scene, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, no. Le- you know, let's open the movie with boring dialogue, essentially. And some of the most sleepy dubbing i have ever heard in my life and i hope that you can please put in some of the dialogue from the opening into this uh, well well, it's gonna it's gonna sound like harrison ford sounds like now black ninja (laughs) you know it's it's it is sleepy uh, like you read about and uh, of course it's gonna be in the show because uh, you you can't make that uh, you can't do that justice uh. jerry it's fantastic it's great no one can defeat you Jerry, don't you think it's time for us to deal with Roger Kimsky? Yeah, we got to get rid of them. With the black ninjas, they only destroy the name of the good ninjas. Yeah, ninjas originally meant to do good. A symbol of sacrifice, strength, and power. Yeah, that's right. But it should be the power to save men, not to destroy the world. Does that set a fun tone at all, or is that a dangerous sort of like in terms of uh, that that uh, to- total tally of uh, being an entertaining movie? W- w- was that in danger watching this opening scene, where you kind of delighted about the great badness that we have on, on screen here? It was a red flag because there was there was nothing really inspiring and and wild about it. You can't argue that they bring energy for this one. I mean, there is a fight scene, yeah, and Paulo Toca looks. Out of these two, at least, he looks alive. But the um, the black actor, whether he's uh, I don't know his his nationality, at least as dubbed, that's where my joke comes in. That that I always rather that's the word that always comes into my mind or two words: charisma overload. 
in a sarcastic way because that guy isn't bringing any any energy uh, you know compared to Tocha that, that he's a blank, total blank face and he's not in it a, a lot so I don't think they saw a promise in this gentleman uh, compared to Tocha at least there's there's an ironic uh, exchange of dialogue at the beginning here where Politoka and the black actor are talking and uh, the black actor who can whose name I don't actually know um, is in a white ninja suit. Paolo says to him, uh, sorry for getting you involved in this mission to kill black ninjas. <laughs> well, I'm a black ninja. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, that's that's harsh, man. Yeah, who knows if it was said like that on the day, you know. Like, hey, what are you talking about? I am, uh-huh. but, but who knows? Yeah, it's over pretty quickly, and we mostly get the original movie here. I mean, Filmok doesn't do a robo vampire here or anything by taking up uh, the majority of the screen time themselves, which is uh, could have been great, I suppose. But um, there's no promise here in terms of like directorial energy. We don't we don't have whoever worked on Robo Vampire steering this. It doesn't seem like it that way. Kim's knows you're in Hong Kong. That's great. I've been wanting to fight him. That uh, trait of how Filmok integrate themselves into this movie, I mean, we, we can certainly mention a few examples, even if it's later in the movie. For, for me, it's, it is clever, and it sort of, because it's so silly, adds to the entertainment factor here, because it's so split-second sometimes. It's, they need to remind us, not for a few minutes at a time, Ed, but sometimes just for a second or two. You have like a shot of feet sometimes. Ninjas. Oh, <laughs> it's a ninja movie. I find that sort of irresistible that that was the tool that Thomas Tang's Filmark insisted on. Like, yeah, this is how we make the illusion intact. And maybe they were right. I love that part of it. I mean, I think that that's terrific. I, I just wish the, the ninja scenes uh, were more fun. Or alternatively, I wish that that level of integration was a little stronger in the IFD movies. Yeah, I, I agree. The, the best parts in here comes when they, you know, there's deaths in the original movie, and the, the best parts are when they become the ones responsible for certain deaths that obviously they are not. Some some other bad guys are in the original. That is also not too badly done. I mean, there, mm-hmm. we, we can certainly mention without spoiling it too much that, that uh, scene with the bomb in the radio control car. I mean, is that generally well done, do you think, in terms of uh, how they exchange what happens in the original movie and uh, what they do instead here? Yes, on that one. Um, less so the second time around where there is, in the original film, a gunshot that kills a character, which uh, when they insert ninjas into it, it is apparently a slingshot. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> oh, my God, that is bad. Well, it's a ninja slingshot. So The ninja slingshot, right. And I'm like, oh, come on, you could have a ninja with a gun. I wouldn't mind. But whatever. Yeah, well, we have Rage of a Ninja, you know, a classic opening scene where, well, there's many scenes in ninja movies where they're shooting uh, Uzis and what have you. But the Rage of a Ninja at IFD always comes to mind where it's the ninja showdown at as the opening scene. Mike Abbott, they're, no, no, no, no, no, they're talking back and forth like the ultimate ninja, blah, blah, blah. Then they bring out the Uzis because you got to do it properly, I suppose. But um, Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, in general, uh, pros and cons of Trap. Uh, if you have any spontaneous uh, general notes about that because there's a lot of the original movie here you can si- you can sort of see what it's supposed to be like based on the footage here you know yeah well it's it's bleak um it's it's kind of brutal uh some of that is toned down in the filmark version i agree and at this time at in hong kong cinema it is part of a very bleak and gritty time in terms of how they made movies there there's always new waves in cinema all over the world this new wave at 
the end of the 70s and early 80s was part political but in general angry and therefore they shot movies in a very gritty way this isn't as originally made political as such they just made a very gritty and bleak movie but i like that because a few years later Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung entered and gave us the action, modern kung fu action comedy. You had John Woo's movies coming in. And this gritty era of the early 80s was quickly ejected. So I, I really do like this feel. It's It's got a very nice street feel, almost captured in a documentary fashion, the way they shoot it. Uh, you know, where the, the opening scene from Trap is this, uh, you know, brutal killing of witnesses uh, in a restaurant. And it's not choreographed gunplay as such Ed, and it's very basic as made but for my money's worth it's affecting violence because it's callous the story is you know it's callous violence uh, by this callous hitman and in in a very basic way it becomes very you know effective as violent and they um, demonstrate that early and it's it runs through the original movie fairly well this violent touch that also escalates because by that point halfway into the movie we know that it, it's game on here anyone is game in this movie you know young and old you should hide out somewhere where do i go the philippines black ninja empire wants you there absolutely no that that's true and i realized seeing the i realized watching it that i had seen um, Silver Dragon Ninja before, but uh, it had it had left almost no real impact on me except the final scene, which is an impromptu court trial set up in a parking garage. That I had remembered, and I think that that's sort of a clever situation that I don't think I'd, I've seen before, and I don't want to give too much away. It's the greater political angle of the movie, I think, or at least social commentary angle. Um, the, the original and both and the film arc movie sort of hints at this uh, disbelief in the, the justice system, and um, they do agree to state this uh, this trial, which is not a mock trial, but they do agree to state it, uh, state it based on the fact that there's a bit of a hostage situation and uh, explosions about and stuff like that. But I, I've, I've never seen that in a, in a movie since. Uh, at, at this time in Hong Kong, they didn't reuse this scenario, so I think it's uh, fairly unique to, to this movie. But you know what? I hope I'm not wrong, so I'm going to go out on a limb here. Isn't it wonderful that Stuart Smith is dubbing Pying, the lead character, out of Trap? Oh, yes. I was going to bring that up myself if you, if you hadn't just done so. So, yes, I loved it. Mark Moe's got to be the man behind all this. I'm having him checked out right now. I think he sent Turkey to kill those two. Hey, Tom, come on. Let's go. Where to? Somewhere we can do something. It's a big case. He's uh, sort of reserved for Stuart Smith, though. Like, it's him. But it's not Ninja Operation Night and Warrior. But... So, so, but I, I think it's wonderful because he's, he's got such a recognizable voice, uh, both with the accent, but um, and I, I, I love that he got a gig dubbing a full, almost a full movie at uh, Filmark. So, you know, does it fit the bleak and dark movie there? It is. Uh, do you think he um, uh, sort of uh, matches the performance that uh, of uh, Pai Ying in, in in that regard? I'm gonna go with sure. The thing about Smith is that he has he ensconced himself into this uh, Hong Kong dub scene, so his his voice is just one of those voices that you hear a lot and you get kind of get used to. And there's a lot of that Hong Kong British that you also hear in a lot of those these kind of films, and it just becomes part of the kind of aural landscape of uh, Hong Kong action gangster cinema. So so what I'm really saying is. I'm I'm used to his voice, so it fits. 
Yeah, you're right. These voices are familiar. Even in Ninja Killer, our Turkish lead, the voice they gave him in English is a guy who stopped every conceivable movie in in Hong Kong, Kung Fu or otherwise. Uh, don't know his name because I don't know these guys, uh, uh, the name behind the voices. Uh, but it, it's uh, sort of a it's sort of wonderful and uh, comforting, I suppose. So, but uh, th- that made me genuinely happy because I didn't remember that. Oh, sweet! <laughs> I could this movie. Even if it wasn't gonna turn out alright, if there was a red flag on my behalf, that would have removed the red flag. Stuart Smith is here to save a day. I mean, Pai Ying, the actor, is by no means, a, you know, a slouch or anything. He's an effective uh, villain in uh, movies like, uh, well, not movies like, he is an effective villain, and people have seen him possibly in um, King Who's classic A Touch of Zen. So he's been in uh, a variety of uh, movies, both in Hong Kong and uh, Taiwan. And uh, he is, you know, a raging force. He's provoked and uh, he is battling this sort of unwinnable war uh, because the movie, as we've said, turns really pitch black as uh, Mark Mo, the Kenneth Tsang character, goes after his family. And uh, that is. both visible in the original and uh, this cut of the movie, of course. And uh, it's, it's a very serviceable performance, not uh, award-worthy, but uh, he brings a certain uh, big force to it all, but isn't a super cop, which fits uh, whatever realism they were attempting uh, with this story. So uh, I, I think uh, Pai Ying yeah, is uh, it's one of his rare lead roles, because uh, when he, normally when he was a bad guy, he was a supporting role, but uh, it's one of his rare lead roles here. So... Um, appreciated that and uh, we both had a chance to see the original movie too to judge it a little bit more on its own merits albeit english dubbed in in this case jane mm-hmm. your new task is to be an informer a spy on mark's side it's a really important job absolutely vital mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and jane be careful mm-hmm. do your best huh paulo tocha he's got an awesome career but he's not in this movie He's barely in this movie, and it's it's as we said uh, some of the laziest footage in terms of that Filmark has done in terms of how to convey the illusion that this is one because he's he does one-sided phone conversations, which is stupid but hilarious. This first com- conversation where he's supposedly in a police station because he's uh, joined the Hong Kong police or infiltrated the Hong Kong police, so they do that like hello. Uh huh. Well, do your best. Uh huh. <laughs> yes. Be careful. Uh huh. Oh, bye. I mean, <laughs> come on. There's supposed to be footage there. Like, uh, and there, there must have been a phone scene or something. But I, I just love that because it was so unusual. I was expecting the whole back and forth, like, "Hi, how are you doing?" And cut to ten years later, or, uh, ten years earlier, or how many, depending how how many years it uh, could be, depending on the movie. But uh, that is wonderful. It's, it's my favorite soundbite. Out of, out of the movie, the the one sided conversation. So one of his early ones is like like uh huh, okay. How did Jane infiltrate the bad guys organization? All right, bye. And the previous scene had one of the main characters tell Jane to infiltrate the bad guys organization. <laughs> yeah, it's you know you mentioned that it felt sloppy. There's uh, a little bit sloppy as uh, as edited. And um, does that take away from it, or because it's film mark, you you sort of go with it? It's hard to criticize everything that you notice so that was not the biggest problem with this cut and paste film i don't want to spoil too much but the biggest alteration is a bombing sequence as i said where ninjas are responsible instead 
and that is uh, just incredible darkness from the original movie. It's it's made in a quick way, and it's felt more in the original movie because uh, of the aftermath that uh, is cut from this one. It's it's probably worth just going ahead and, and spoiling it because it's yeah, I suppose uh, so. Yeah, it's it's interesting enough and and sort of important enough to how the film has changed. The main character's son, who is a young kid of like eight or something like that, is killed by the bad guys in a with a little RC car that explodes. And uh, he does, or he, he's, I should say, I, I don't know if I said he was killed, but he was blown up. He's sent to the hospital and they save him, but he is emotionally, he's, he has brain damage. And so he is sort of mentally disabled for the rest of the film. Uh, and it's really sad and pitiable, and and he shows up a few more times. Well, in the Silver Dragon Ninja version, he is killed by the explosion, and they do their very best to edit him out of the rest of the film, but they can't entirely because he is in some very important scenes. So stray shots remain where this child is there who should not be there. You have this uh, very raw uh, house invasion scene. I, I don't know if there's shots of him in there, but he, you can see him very firmly in the original lab where he witnesses this rape scene. It doesn't go on for long, but he witnesses it. Uh, he probably doesn't know what he is witnesses, but he, he's looking at it like the, gleefully almost. Obviously, it isn't gleefully, but he's sort of... It's, it's chilling, though, because... It is. Yeah. And he's also, uh, towards the end of the movie, the Paiyan character during or just before the court scene, his son is with him. And uh, there's some, some tenderness there. Uh, you know, the family is uh, very much uh, fragmented by that part, uh, by that point, rather. The violence is really, really cool at, at some point. I mean, there's, I don't think it's, if this was the scene where the Jane, I suppose, maybe, stabs the turkey, the villain, with broken glass or broken from a mirror shots from a mirror and it looks like she is stabbing him in the groin and then grinding the damn mirror into the groin and then kills him that way regardless if it was meant to be totally in the groin and getting him that way effective stuff that i gotta tell you it's um they uh they make us sit there for a little while and experience that uh, i admire that gritty violence that is uh, that is there and certainly within a goofy ninja movie it might lose its effect but i don't know about you but sometimes i just look at them as two movies when the illusion isn't very strong it's sort of like i'm watching almost all of trap here oh Mm -hmm. i'm watching sort of i'm watching the 10 minutes of silver uh, silver dragon ninja now i I sort of separate them sometimes when the illusion isn't uh, as strong compared to the examples we talked about before where the illusion is very strong. Uh, but um, that's just me. It might be something I need to retune in terms of my critical view of these things. But uh, there it is. Headquarters. A silver dragon speaking. A betrayer in the Hong Kong police force? Incredible. I must uncover such a guy. Good. You keep in touch. Okay. Goodbye. Uh, I don't have any other huge notes um, other than, I suppose, Oh, so I mean, we get a we get a finale, and uh, Paolo Tocha is a capable action performer, and I'm gonna so so the finale is acceptable in terms of the little action that we do get, but I'm not gonna mention the following note. But I'm just gonna check if you have it yourself, because I think if you have it yourself, this note, then your 
telling of it will be much more funnier. Do you have any notes on the reemergence of the white, the black guy from the beginning of the movie and his participation in the finale? Do you have any notes on his on his demise? My friend must be in trouble. Think I'll go help him. Well, I just have the uh, his his introduction to that last scene where Paolo is fighting the the bad guy out in the out in the wherever and uh suddenly we cut to the the black ninja looking outside of his window yeah. nowhere nearby and he <laughs> says my friend must be in trouble i think i'll help him yeah <laughs> and 10 seconds later he's dead <laughs> not paolo tocha but the black guy yes I think what happened was that they, that thing where he senses he's in trouble, they shot that afterwards to kind of just add a little bit more to the finale because it's really lame the little they shoot with him because his demise is so quick. So it's almost like Thomas Tang and Co. like shoot something else to make him part of the finale, like at least a few seconds more where we see him you know uses ninja power i suppose <laughs> my friend is in trouble that made me laugh because it's so like unworthy almost so there it is like they, they even gave the black guy an unworthy action uh, demise almost like uh, at least give him a one minute fight scene but we we we neglect by the way to mention that at film arc uh, they never used as far as i know the headbands that say ninja on them they rarely used any headbands with anything at all on them but in this movie there is something on paulo tocha's uh, forehead and i'm not sure if it is actually the just the mitsubishi logo but turned upside down <laughs> but it certainly looks like it what they were probably going for is a three-pointed ninja star but yeah <laughs> i think you're you're more accurate I mean, that's how you avoid, uh, you know, infringing on something copyrighted. Turn it upside down, man. That'll, that'll work. It's in a movie or two, but it's not something that Filmark made their own. Like, IFT got Ninja on the thing. We got this thing that we turned upside down. I mean, and I mean, I've seen uh, one or two Filmark movies where they put where they stick a throwing star to the one of the guy's headbands and call it call it a day. I don't know where it's stolen from, but I think the soundtrack is excellent. A lot of great synth-driven instrumental uh, instrumental tunes going on here, and very moody too, so I, I did like that. There are some quotes from Tonight, Tonight, Tonight by uh, Genesis or Phil Collins. Uh, and then there are some very brief bits from uh, Rambo. At least I believe that that is uh, what they're from. Right on. I haven't seen Rambo in a in a. Would that be a, one of the um, uh, the first Blood one or one of the subsequent ones? Or, or, or that's too hard to tell. I, I couldn't tell you for sure because they're uh, at least the you know it's still uh, Jerry Goldsmith and it's still the same themes. Yeah, it's probably why I liked it uh, because it, it it felt like a good. Like good composition, so uh, so they normally stole, not normally, but fairly often stole good music for for these movies at least. Um, so there it is. But but I thought, I thought it did fit really well. And the only other note I have, my favorite edit in terms of like getting trap out and ninja in is the uh, Kenneth Sang Ninja Nightmare, 
Well, because we've been able to watch the original movie, so we we've been able to notice some some key differences without going frame by frame, and it's not very like detailed characteristics here. Kenneth Zhang is our bad guy, and that's who he is. But for some reason, he he has some fear, I suppose, of Alan Pai Ying's character coming after him. So in the original movie, he dreams of sitting in this. Uh, He's at the barbershop or hair salon or whatever, and he's getting a shave. And out comes Alan and slices his throat, and then he wakes, and then he wakes up. In the film walk version, I don't know if they did more than like some split-second footage of ninjas, but he wakes up dreaming of ninjas in a nightmare fashion, but I thought he was on the side of the ninjas, though. Yeah, he's, well, it's, uh, it's like one shot of a ninja in darkness, um, I think, threatening him. So I think it's like, do a, do a good job or else we'll kill you. Or you, you have failed me or, well, you know, that sort of, that kind of nonsense. But I think it was a nice little exchange because, um, yeah, I just, I mean, it's not classic, uh, you know, film or cut and paste illusion here, but uh, I'm glad they kept it. Rather than cut it all out, uh, but rather they had to shoot something or insert something and uh, remove something else. So I like it. For comparison purposes, it's fun to have. Now, I do want to ask you, do you want to mention the very, very, very end of the film? Uh, well, so who plays the who plays the, the ninja villain? Well, I, I, I, I think I know the guy, but I, I've been so sloppy that I didn't, I didn't look up his name. But uh, that's our Kimsky character that's uh, who's dubbed in a very energetic way, though. But, uh, oh, yeah, no, it's coming back to me now. I, I, I'm going to put in the quotes in, in the thing there because he, he, he has a speech towards yes. the end and it's a sort of magic twist yes that's right so uh roger kimsky the villain is dispatched by uh palatoka and uh normally that would mean that paolo walks off screen and then you make a bet with your friend as to whether he'll actually make it off of out of the frame before the words the end come up and then we have the and then we have the music exactly and uh, and in this case, that's not what happens. Uh, suddenly, we cut to a hill somewhere with the villain uh, in full ninja regalia, his arms outstretched in the air, exclaiming that he isn't really dead after all. This is only a physical death, and it means nothing at all. Someday, I'll rise up again like the spirit of the ninja empire that exists everywhere. And survive! <laughs> yeah, he was just, just nonsense. But I, I, I'm glad you reminded me because I, I did like it when I watched it. But it's it's like he's not uh, having human form or something like that. So you can't really kill him at all, I suppose. Some nonsense he's, like he that. He says, this is only a physical death. And it means nothing at all. Someday I'll rise up again like the spirit of the ninja empire that exists everywhere and survive. The end. <laughs> and, and at that point you should make a, a little bet about what's the color of the, um, of the, back, of the VN uh, uh, title card that uh, comes right. up on the screen. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's wonderful nonsense after such a harrowing time. But uh, that's, that's what we have. It's, uh, the total ninja tally for me is, is still, it's, uh, it's entertaining. And uh, I, I've revisited this movie a couple of times, so not just for this show. So. Well, I, I have one little note, but I'm going to put it in, into the show anyway. There's the longest running to greet 
their master scene ever in one of these movies uh, when the ninjas going to meet Kimsky as they do. And it's like someone was working for the Hong Kong Tourism Board or something. Just we're going to run by some things that look good, you know, some some picturesque things. And they run and they run and they run and they run and they run. And when they arrive, I think it's the same scene. They do this a couple of times. But in one of the scenes where they do arrive, they Kimsky ask, are are all here? Yes, master. Some could not come. (laughs) <laughs> I know. Oh my god, it's so good. Are all ninjas gathered here? Yeah, Chief, we're all here. But some ninjas are busy now. I'm afraid they won't come this time. And I love that they're running. But I guess it's a stylish thing where they keep their hands on the handle of their sword while running. But it sort of looks awkward to run like that. Yeah, well, because in the IFD movies, they have their swords at their side. And so they can hold it and still look pretty cool. But here they've got them over their back. And so it just they're contorted awkwardly as they run because they're desperately trying to make sure that the sword doesn't fall. And they do that in every damn scene, whether they're, you know, running past the car or just uh, hiding behind the car for a second. That's the stance for some reason. Um, yeah. So they're, they're one of those like drinking games too that you can, that you can engage in. Like uh, every time, every time they <laughs> they do that stance. But uh, yeah. Some some good stuff in a very harrowing movie. Did you get a chance to watch the entirety of Trap, or did you just scan through it? Because the DVD we're going to talk of has the original movie on it as well. Uh, I watched the whole film. And did, did, did it change significantly in terms of... Oh, which one did you view first, by the way? Um, I watched uh, Trap first. Right, right, right. So did, did it feel like uh, your view of it changed as you went as you went through the Filmark version? Uh, I mean, did, did, did you like Trap better as originally made, or did it feel sort of the same, only minus a few scenes? Yeah, I mean, it, it felt kind of the same. I thought it was interesting the way that they sort of excised the character. Um, but uh, And they, they toned down some of the, the rapiness, which was uh, appreciated. Um, but basically, it was the same film. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, well... Do you have any other notes, or should we do the availability? Uh, let's jump. Let's go forward. Right on, and it, it is available. So German label AVV, who were very kind to send us both an original DVD of this wonderful looking, you know, retro sort of VHS uh, style uh, artwork on it, and uh, and a bigger case than usual as well. And they, they put They're out called the, hard boxes. That's right. That's right. And they put out this special edition, essentially, of uh, Silver Dragon Ninja, featuring a decent widescreen transfer for Filmox version. This movie wasn't shot in full scope, so that's why you, it's it's uh, like 1.70 framed or whatever, uh, in the case of the Filmox version. Uh, being an early 80s movie, they sort of stopped uh, doing scope movies unless they were doing big action movies, a la a police story by Jackie Chan or something like that. Uh, so we got a decent looking uh, version of the cut and paste one. We got the original movie in full screen, dubbed in English. It's from an Ocean Shores VHS version released in Hong Kong. And uh, with a pretty decent dub. And it might have been released subtitled as well by Ocean Shores. Sometimes between the formats and sometimes they did multiple releases. You've had, you would have a dubbed version and later or previously a uh, subtitled version. Sometimes on Laserdisc. You had the dubbed version, but the subtitled version appeared earlier on VHS. So they were kind of unpredictable in that regard. Ocean Shores had a ton of excellent movies, though, but they didn't treat all of them very very well, especially when they started dubbing the damn movies themselves. Because you remember Wolf, Devil, Woman? Uh, if you didn't remember it, I usually refer to it as that movie as the Rudolph dub version of the film because Ocean Shores had this thing of just 
dubbing it very poorly and coming up with very, very stupid names, a la IFD. But Wolf Devil Woman also appeared at IFD as Wolf and Ninja in a completely different but better dub. So sometimes the Ocean Shores dubs were a bit... It's, it's, we always, Wolf Devil Woman is perhaps not the best example to bring up in terms of the dubbing madness. It's a better when you bring up a movie like Nine Demons, this uh, sort of fantasy, fantasy special effects movies that features characters named Steve. <laughs> which doesn't fit very well, but it makes for, in the case of that, like it's bad, but it makes for a decent entertainer because, uh, okay, like uh, pew pew pew, they're shooting like special effects, uh, animated uh, laser beams at each other, Steve, pew pew pew. As I said, you get the original movie in full on the DVD, as well as other assorted extras, trailers, and uh, clips from other versions of the movie, movie in Spanish and stuff like that, so... But but it's good. Like I'm glad that we have both available. You can that we, that we can compare and therefore see the scenes uh, that uh, had no ninjas in them at all, and uh, see uh, a version of the film that has no ninjas hiding behind walls or cars. So um, uh, AVV um, does not pay us, but but man, if you can get your hands on um, the AVV releases of the IFD and Filmark movies, they are the most deluxe version that you can possibly get because basically any bits of these films that exist have been called and put together on uh these releases they are just spectacular indeed i agree fairly they're not normally from film prints but the best elements from vhs uh, normally in widescreen uh, and if not you know even when in full screen we got fairly decent transfers uh, still around so they're they're using the best that, that there is because we're not gonna get 4k remasters of silver dragon ninja anytime soon because the elements and the materials are simply not there anymore and uh, things like that so uh, very well put and uh, indeed they didn't send these for us to give them a glowing review we uh, would have bought them of course and gave it the, the same the same review as we did so so that's it break time some uh, wonderful music or not from ninja killer and where we are going to discuss this unusual hong kong turkey co-production that then was cut and pasted at ift sorry filmark for heaven's sake but not using Paolo Tocha or Stuart Smith or Mike Abbott or any other lead. We got Hong Kong leads taking center stage in footage shot later on. So we'll tell you all about that after the break. Welcome back, and the final review of this episode is Ninja Killer from either possibly around 1985-1986, and we'll get to the theories about the production year of the, this Filmark uh, version, but the, the review is coming up, and uh, Ed is going to provide us with the plot, so take it away, Ed. Sure, and as I mentioned before, uh, I am totally winging it on some of these character names, but uh, you know, I'm, do- I'm doing my best here. You'll know who I'm talking about if you're trying to follow along with the actual film. Liu Kung. Charlie Chan is the head of a Hong Kong smuggling syndicate who has fled to Turkey to evade the police. Now that he's there, he's continuing to smuggle stolen goods overseas to his partner Yang Quan, Bolo Young. But rival Li Tian Ho, Kong Do, 
is trying to muscle in on Yang Quan's business, and the two become uneasy and increasingly fatal partners. Meanwhile, Hong Kong Police Inspector Carter Wong sends Liu Yong, Lao Kar Wing, to Turkey to stop the smuggling at its source. There, he partners with Istanbul's best, Inspector Charles, Turkish superstar Junaid Arkun, to take down Liu Kong. This involves getting a belly dancer to seduce Liu Kong and Inspector Charles seducing Liu Kong's wife. And it all leads up to a dramatic chase and kung fu fight on the rooftops of Istanbul. A very undercranked uh, kung fu fight on the rooftops of Istanbul. So there it is. And that brings us to the point that Ninja Killer is uh, a film mock cut and paste movie where the thought process was... Asians in the leads as market value. Not a Western train of thought in terms of selling this action movie to the West or with uh, our own version of Richard Harrison on the forefront. Uh, this was maybe just before they started adapting that thought. But uh, regardless, new scenes were filmed with uh, Carter Wong, Kong Do, and Bolo Young that was inserted into Karate on the Bosporus from 1974. Is that how you pronounce that area of Turkey? Bosporus. Yes, uh, I believe that Bosporus is how it's pronounced, but I'm not really an expert, I'm afraid. Um, but actually, the the original the original film is uh, Karate Çelar İstanbul'da, which translates more accurately or or literally, I guess, to like karate guys in Istanbul. Um, but I guess there was an international title, uh, such as it was, that was Karate on the Bosporus. That's like a title if you translate it or uh, that Turkish title that puts everything on front street. Now now you know what it's about. Like it's, we're not going to feature symbolism or artful symbolism here. Nope, karate guys. Yep. They're going to fight. <laughs> there was some question um, about whether this was actually a film arc release mm-hmm. and i was wondering if that's something we wanted to touch upon i ch- uh, b- because we did announce it and then i kind of got unsure i did speak to jesus perez molina and he has confirmed that the best of his abilities that indeed it was despite bearing no filmog logo there's no thomas tang on the print so and i trust jesus instinct so um everything that we say can be possibly wrong but uh um, we're going with the instinct that this is this sort of oddity in the film arc, uh, filmography before they did their action cut and paste line that we recognize and know of. Uh, so uh, we, we're going with that assumption. But feel free, listeners, to correct us. I I love Jesus. I'm I'm I don't know where I'd be if uh, if that guy did not was not around doing this. Indeed, indeed. So humble and so like I'm, I'm just a guy. Well, no, you're a god. <laughs> like that would make a guy like that feel at ease like i'm just a guy who likes these movies no <laughs> we worship you but uh, yeah very good guy sharing information and regardless ninja killer is worth talking about so even though we have a problem here with the title there's no ninjas but we'll get to that a hong kong turkey co-production uh, co- credited in some places to victor lamp but on the print it's lawrence chan and it sort of indicates that it had a turkish director but i haven't found anything on hong kong movie database anyway other than turkish director but they didn't have any original name do you know anything about that personally uh victor lamb is what's on uh the print of karate chela istanbul so um uh, okay I'm, but i i have to say that it looks turkish i mean like the the style the cinematography the undercranked fight scene and the the punching at the camera like there's so much of it that feels turkish is is victor lamb is is he a known director 
No, it, the only credit on Hong Kong Movie Database is this movie, which indicates that this is, you know, a foreign part, so to say, compared to Hong Kong, a, f- a foreign part of the equation, so to say. Uh, but but they didn't have any other AKs uh, for for him. But um, what we know of though is uh, this stars and is action choreographed by legendary actor, fight coordinator, and director Lau Gaoing from the Hong Kong side. Uh, and uh, he is the uh, brother of uh, another legend, even greater legend, Lau Galung. Uh, Lu Chao Liang, uh, mostly he's credited as uh, on Shaw Brothers movie, Shaw Brothers movie's excellent director of the Thirty Six Chamber of Shaolin, among other things. But Lao Ga Wing has himself d- directed and uh, stunt-, stunt coordinated a ton of movies, including the classic King Boxer, aka Five Fingers of Death. That was his action directing that you saw on American screens once upon a time. The first kung fu movie to get the international distribution was King Boxer, aka Five Fingers of Death. So you saw Lao Gawing's gritty and classic action work there. And uh, this is a rare starring role for him, actually. Uh, so it was cool to see young Lao Gawing paired up with uh, Turkey's, uh, Turkey's own. So there it is. But the Ed is here to tell us all about this um, legendary actor. This was not a one-off. This guy did a few movies. Absolutely. So the floor is yours, buddy. Junaid Arkun was and still is the man's man, Turkey's action superstar. He's appeared in something like 250 movies and TV series from the 1960s onward. Born in 1937 and educated in Istanbul, he originally trained as a doctor before becoming an actor, and he continued to practice medicine throughout his career. I also respect that, that you whatever industry we're talking about sometimes it's apparent in hong kong as well that acting is almost like priority two that that that that it's not a sure thing and maybe the turkish industry was not this sure thing so it's good to have a main plan that you can financially rely on too you know well when he when he trained as a doctor um there probably was no real turkish film industry to speak of or perhaps it was just it was just budding at that point uh because it really didn't get going until the 50s what I find, what I just find so interesting is that because he kind of quickly uh, became like the guy, that he can still continued to practice medicine. And I don't know where he would have found the time, but uh, he did it anyway. His early films saw him playing a variety of romantic leads, but as action became more popular, he adapted with the demand. He learned stunt riding from a Russian circus, trained in acrobatics, and earned a black belt in karate. These skills, combined with a natural charisma and screen presence, made him a winning combination of John Wayne, Errol Flynn, and Clint Eastwood. And I didn't know any of that, that he had actual uh, martial arts uh, skill, which was, not that I doubted it, but it was one of those like, hey, what a nice piece of info, and no wonder. I was impressed by the action portions in Ninja Killer. Uh, So Laga Wing had talent to work with as he choreographed the action. So there it is. He starred in a number of Turkish historical epics, and in the 70s, he became synonymous with crime and gangster films. These mimicked the Italian poliziotesque crime films of the same period that starred tough guys like Franco Nero and, coincidentally, Richard Harrison. 
back when uh, pardon me back when Richard was a bit more alive looking yes. in, in cinema <laughs> <laughs> yeah when he was and when he was not when he was not dead inside Junaid was no stranger to ninjas either battling them in The Last Warrior in 1982 and Death Warrior in 1984 but Arkun is perhaps is probably best known in the west as the star of 1982's The Man Who Saves the World better known as Turkish Star Wars It's a sci-fi epic that steals footage from Star Wars, music from Indiana Jones, and many others, and pits Arkun against Cylons, mummies, and Muppets. Does not sound boring at all. (laughs) No, it it is madness, but it is not boring. Yeah, you know, that's cutting and pasting that... You know, contrary to what people think IFD and Filmok did, this is cutting and pasting that where they didn't license the sights and sounds. I assume everything was stolen, you know, because no, oh, yes. like, like they weren't licensed out this stuff, obviously. But, you know, give, give it to us a little bit more. Like, is it as fun as this, as it sounds? Like, no, no, do they, the Turkish filmmakers, and the editors add their own brand of energy amidst the shameless thievery, if you will. Oh yeah, I mean that that's it's fantastic and and over the top and wild. And it wasn't as common for these kinds of films to lift footage from other films, but because science fiction films require a certain level of of special effects finesse, it was probably easier to pull from elsewhere. How how how, how much of it is it? I mean, what's the ratio in terms of like is it thirty percent Star Wars or? Oh no no no! I mean, we're talking I don't know like five ten percent. Like it's it's it's shots. It's not uh, scenes. Right. So it's really like if you want to show the bad guys spaceship, then you show a spaceship from Star Wars. And, uh, you know, or we want the planet to look cool, so we'll use footage of the Death Star and claim that it's a planet that's been formed, uh, like, in- encrusted with the crystalline brain brain thought energy matter <laughs> it's it's i mean it's, it's complete and total bonkers but uh yeah it's it's not the same way that the ifd and filmark movies cut and paste generally speaking uh when you're talking about the lifting of material from for for turkish films you're either talking in terms of a remake or you're talking in terms of the music um because that was a case where it was much more cost effective and time effective to take music that already exists as opposed to getting an orchestra and doing a recording it's like, like they were churning out these films so quickly that it was you could shoot and cut a film yourself um, or with a small crew and do it quickly but you couldn't do the same with music right right right you have a a knowledge uh i, I don't know if you can claim you have a deep knowledge of uh, turkish cinema in cinema in my eyes you do because i don't know anything but you know what what is the appeal of turkey at least uh eras we're talking about here the 70s and 80s uh. you know my my area of interest is primarily in in pop cinema and uh what is more commonly known as fantastic turkish fantastic cinema um and even then my my super like focus is is in the remake uh field but the thing is that it's just it's so wild it's like the wild west when you see some of the movies now coming up on youtube coming out of nigeria and african countries where they've uh, only in the past 20 years gotten their hands on video cameras and are shooting movies fast and quick and dirty and you know low budget and crazy and cheesy effects but you know wild energy and stuff it's that same kind of thing happening in turkish fantastic films in the the 60s and 70s and 80s I mean, there's also an historical context to be absorbed 
with the fun, I suppose. I mean, that's what you do with Deja Vu. Like, you provide the historical aspect, uh, context and aspect, but but you you do frame it in a, in a manner where it does come off as fun as well. So, so, so I gather that's part of your character too, that the, you want the history to uh, to be part of uh, the fandom too, like, like whatever history there is to be researched, uh, that is. Well, I think, I think that's, you know, that's what we're doing, what we do here as well. It's the, you see something, you know, perhaps on YouTube, uh, some sort of crazy scene from some outrageous film. It's easy to point and laugh and say that it's ridiculous. And that's fun. I find it much more interesting to then take it and go deeper and understand why does this exist? Why does it look the way that it does? Uh, is there more of it? Why is there more of it? Where does it come from? You can't put out these thing, these things officially, but nowadays, right? Or do they try and get it under the radar of Lucas and uh, Disney? Well, Turkish Star Wars is um, one that you can find on on YouTube and all over the place, uh, but it's not it's, that one hasn't been officially released. Some of the Turkish films uh, have been. Manda Macabro has done um, a handful of Turkish films. I released. Um, Rampage, the Turkish Rambo, but I had to replace the soundtrack because it lifted so much from Rambo and Mad Max. You got to act, dude, because you, you because I assumed you were one of or many voices in that one. Uh, no, I well, I didn't. Uh, I, I you can hear my my voice once or twice in it. Right, but okay, I'm not okay, a voice gotcha. actor. You could you could you, you could have done the classic in Rampage, the classic. Boom. Yeah, right. You know, and so a lot of this stuff has not been released. Some of it you can find, and you can find subtitled. I can probably count on one hand the number of Turkish films that have been released with an English dub, and Ninja Killer would probably be would be one of those. Maybe not back in the day, but certainly as re-envisioned here by by Filmark, yeah. But you know what? If people want to seek out Turkish pop cinema, if you, if you want to call it that, I mean, is it a crazy fun that you got to start with the, the the sort of exploitation aspect of it, or would you point towards any any remake uh, from Turkey? I would definitely, I, I would go for you know try something like like Turkish Star Wars or Turkish Star Trek. Those are really fun ins. You'll find a lot that's familiar and plenty that is unfamiliar, and is a nice gateway drug to the weird and and wonderful world of Turkish pop cinema. And, and really, to to reel back to Ninja Killer and Akin, I mean, what, what makes him appealing? Is it just that he is the man's man, the Turkish action superstar? Is that it? Uh, all you need to know, or what, what makes him appealing to you? Yeah, well, I mean, Arkun is—he really does have that that star charisma, and uh, you've probably seen by watching the films of, of you know, Hong Kong and and mainland China and and Taiwan, you know when someone's a star. It's not just because they're in a bunch of films. Um, it's not just because you see you see them pop up a lot. It's because they have that that presence. You might call it the je ne sais quoi, but you know the the the acting chops or the you know in the case of action stars the machismo. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there's just something there about the way that they present themselves that is bigger than how they act that makes them uh, star worthy and. Junaid Arkun really has that. He's really fascinating to watch on the screen, and he has such energy when he does his uh, his action work. And he puts such commitment into being an action star by you know practicing and learning. And actors, some of his co-stars talked about how when the cameras weren't rolling and they were all hanging out in the shade, 
Arkun was out there doing push-ups and and practicing martial arts and all Man's that kind of stuff. Man's man, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he really was. Um, it's not it's not by accident, is what I'm saying that he's that he starred in so many films. He say he's still alive and working, as far as you know. He is. He is quite old at at the moment, but he uh, he does still pop up in films. That leads us into Ninja Killer. So let me start with a brief opinion there. First of all, uh, as much as it feels like one of many kung fu movies at the time, you know, or karate movies, you know, modern or not, this one does have the chops in the sellable elements department. So thank your Hong Kong lead fight director and Turkey star at hand here for that. Film ox sections. Not as impressive, especially action-wise, despite being shot at least 10 years or so later. I'm going to be short and just say that I agree with you. We're on, we're, we're, we're in sync, and I'm, and I'm glad. I, I, I, it was my first movie with him, so I was kind of like impressed. Whoa, Lao Ga Wing is really choreographing this guy well, and there's a reason that he comes off, you know, well in the action department. Like he's, he's got the skills as well, so it must have been fun for Lao Ga Wing to collaborate here. But it's quite unusual, this uh, product, co-production quality that is brought to the table here because I, I don't know of any other Hong Kong and Turkish co-production I think this is the one but uh, it represents both sides uh, very well and uh, it's also quite unusual as I said that Filmark is using name talent, uh, local name talent, Hong Kong talent for their new footage Carter uh, Wong kind of stars in it, he's in it occasionally so there was no desire to put a western tint on this one uh, to sell uh, to the uh, English market Now I have, I have, a, I have a theory about that, which is that with so much of the film being Turkish, but having roughly Caucasian actors in it, once you dub it into English, you've got that kind of Western appeal. Sure, sure. If you're going off of the IFD theory that throw Caucasians in it and that helps it settle the West, you've already got that. So you don't necessarily need to seek those kinds of actors out or you know in the case of ifd and film often non-actors just simply white guys you know that's not a prerequisite in this case does that make sense that, that is a good point actually and i think you're spot on in a way that they they had their their western tint already to to the production therefore so that, that's right it's the reverse this time we got to make it a little bit Asian, because <laughs> that's normally normally how it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, in terms of production year, because Phil Mock was so goddamn stupid, both on this movie and other movies, they didn't put a production year on their prints. It was always all rights reserved. And like, give us a year, a year. So I asked our friend Jesus Press Molina if he knew when the footage was shot, as Phil Mock had that ill habit. Uh, and his theory is around about 1985, 1986, because actor Kong Do worked at IFD up till around that time and then moved on to Filmark. So his guess, Jesus, that is, is that around that time and most hairstyles and looks of actors supports this quite well, that was when it was shot, 1985, 1986. Uh, some look late 70s, early 80s in their hairstyles, but they might have looked that way, mid-80s too. Uh, so some like of the henchmen uh, in the Hong Kong footage, if you will. If you will. But uh, Carter Wong and Kong Do, I can totally believe that this is mid-80s, and uh, certainly Bolo as well. Bolo as well. The uh, original, um, the, the credits that we get here, uh, we got um, some, you know, they don't make up a lot of these credits <laughs> this time around. It feels like only some were made up or they sort of transformed them just a little bit because we get uh, not Lao Ga Wing starring, but super starring Lao Ka Wen. And I always like when they put super starring on movies. There's a, there's a couple of Bruce Love movies where it's super starring, like bringing like the... 
so, something to live up to by claiming superstarring before the movies. Uh, and, but they, they, they, there's no silly westernizing of credits here. It looks like an export version of the old movie, essentially, because you, you got Chinese credits here. Uh, Lawrence Chan is the credited director. There's a couple of uh, one writer credited uh, here, but another writer credited uh, on Hong Kong Movie Database. So, but but it's all very believable rather than like uh, here's Homer Kwong editing the movie again. You know, if we're talking an IFD movie, so no Stephen Albert or Rudolph even in the movie. Well, we do have we have Inspector Charles. We still have that that like Westerners have a first name and only a first name kind of deal. But all the Chinese characters are you know Leung and uh, Li Chin Ho yes. and stuff like that. So it's it's it feels like a regular export version in a way. But having said all of that, with Kota Wong mixing it up with Lao Going and uh, and you know, is the mix of old and new footage the cut and paste illusion? I always ask this question: Is that is that illusion of note on this production? Um, that's my answer. They sort of the look matches in kind of like it's the colors are similar but since there's so little of it it's sort of there's a fair amount of it to begin the movie with kong do and bolo young and there's a couple of fight scenes but and and the switch to you know former half of the 70s is very noticeable in in certain hairstyles and clothes styles of course but it's not an impressive effect but it's it's doable it's workable for the movie a, a movie that i liked and therefore it's nothing bothersome like because Carter Wong and company, they don't appear that much at all, really. So you you don't really think about it. Here's a case again where we're watching Karate on the Bosporus here. Oh, and Carter Wong is here occasionally. Like it's not Ninja Killer to me, and that brings us to the point that where are the Ninja Killers? Tell me, how is the business going now? Uh, <laughs> as I'm in charge now, there's no problems. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. There's clearly a scene in which Bolo is fighting some masked goons who are absolutely ninjas and not guys in three-hold ski masks with black slacks and and black like t-shirts. There it is. I mean, that's what we have. Like it's a, it's not a superimposed title over something else that it was called. Nope. Ninja Killers, and it doesn't make sense, but you also forget about it, though, because it's good fun. Let me shout out for a while. What do you want to lead with um, next in your notes, uh, talking of uh, talking of this cut and paste one? You know, all right, so one thing I'd kind of like to talk about very briefly is the music, um, which may be a strange thing to lead with. But uh, in the original film, uh, you've got... Do you have the original film at hand, by the way? Yes, I do. Really? I've seen it. Yeah, I mean, there's not much to talk about that's different because you're really basically getting the entire film in uh, Ninja Killer, but there are just a couple of differences. In the original, there's it starts off with it really kind of mixes its Asian like motifs. Uh, in the opening credits, are you hear uh, Sakura that um, that same music that's used when you fight Piston Honda in uh, Punch Out. Right, <laughs> that, was, that was a good that was a good pull. Yeah, well, it's like, okay, well, that's Japan, but all right, these guys are Chinese, whatever. It feels sort of stock, it feels sort of stock music in that, you know, you pulled some music from other films and uh, that's about it. I couldn't really put my uh, finger on a lot of them. There's a couple of belly dance sequences that have some good Turkish folk music that go, go along with that. But when you transfer that into Ninja Killer, when they just replace the entire soundtrack, uh, it gets a little funky because you've got these belly dance sequences that they've replaced with mambo music, which is wildly incongruous and absolutely hysterical. You've also got these funky versions of uh, uh, Barber of Seville, 
uh, Flight of the Bumblebee, Box Toccata and Fugue, and it's it's just a weird, weird mess of uh, of music. Yeah, I can imagine when when you know how how well it sort of is tailored in the original, like this fits, and when it sort of comes out of nowhere with something ill-fitting, albeit fun, the effect can be very entertaining. Uh, yeah, having the alternate that we have here, it's it's cool that you have the original, so you truly can uh, truly can appreciate what they the, the little they did. <laughs> Feel mark that is. Yeah, well, there there are a couple of there are a couple of interesting alterations, and the version that I've seen uh, is either you know, a television recut or it was um, an edit for a particular region, which is the sort of thing that would happen in Turkey. You'd have sort of separate regions uh, for distribution. And some would say, oh, we like more sex scenes or we want a more religious feel and no sex scenes or, you know, that sort of thing. So there would be different cuts of movies based on the region that they'd be sending them out to. And uh, there is some sex and violence in Ninja Killer, the Turkish footage for Ninja Killer, uh, that is excised from the version that I've seen. Yeah, yeah, I was about to ask if uh, this was at all common in Turkish cinema or if there was or if there's a history of strict censorship, uh, including when it comes to... um sex and violence yeah well um yeah uh there is and it's sort of an off and on history and um in some in part parts of it are that regional thing and then in the 80 in 1980 there was a military coup and there was a big crackdown uh censorship wise and so forth but in the film inspector charles sends his belly dancing friend to seduce lu kung and we see her walk up to him and then it cuts away, and then we're like later on in the film, in the in the cut of the original movie that I'd seen. And in this one, there's there, in Ninja Killer, there's so much more. There's she seduces him and tries to dig through his his uh, dresser drawers to find out information, and then uh, he kills her. There's nudity and violence and all kinds of you know that wonderful exploitation stuff. Pretty violent and edgy if you think about it. Like that that neck chop that he delivers to what I assume is her in that scene. Uh, the actor Charlie Chan just neck chops the heck out of uh out of her that, that is a pretty brutal death to be honest like it's it, it's done with an edge nice like violent action edge uh, which is admirable for something i didn't expect much out of to be honest you know yeah absolutely it is not in the version of the film that sort of is floating around uh out there so ninja killer is really the only way to see that stuff what a wonderful uh what a wonderful again like for, for a production few care about we have alternates that, we, uh, that is wonderful to combine, you know, uh, your sort of to put in your memory bank. Uh, uh, I always enjoy that, to, uh, that there's some surviving elements somewhere uh, rather than being gone, gone forever and ever. Well, and I'll tell you this, the, uh, the print of the film as seen in Ninja Killer is far superior to the, um, to the print of Karate Chiller Istanbul Da that's floating around. There's one other interesting transposition in Ninja Killer, they uh, swap the order of a couple of scenes, which kind of uh, drains them of their interest, I think, a little bit. At the beginning of the film, we see Junaid Arkun's character, and he's kind of walking through Istanbul and gets involved with these these bad guys who are doing the smuggling. Holds police hostage, and there's a big chase, and he gets on. He you know gets in with the gang, and then he ends up taking them down and it turns out that he's a cop. Uh, that's how the film starts out in the original. And in this one, they actually put in a scene beforehand uh, where he's talking to his superiors at the police office that actually comes later in the uh, original film, uh, where he's given the assignment to go do that thing. So 
your guess as to whether he's a good guy or a bad guy right. um, has been completely uh, answered for you. <laughs> for I mean, I, I'm fairly familiar with how good modern action kung fu productions looked and felt and how bad ones felt. And this one manages to, despite looking like one of hundreds, maybe thousands, despite the co-production status that it has, it sort of doesn't stand out initially, but it manages to in a very wonderful way because you see the early appearance of the action that's going to drive the film. You have very decent power to the demonstration act kind of action that they do. If it's karate demonstrations, I don't know. And that gritty tint is certainly within capability of Lao Gawing. As I said, you know, having action directed before, among other things, King Boxer. And, you know, what the movie lacks in color and vision. I mean, it's not a big sweeping epic. It is effective as as an action piece. And he is Arkham, Arkin, like, like, like I'm forgetting the pronunciation, but our Turkish man. <laughs> he is an effective brawler. He is powerful. I would have loved to see more either choreographed by someone in Hong Kong or more productions in Hong Kong. Like, it would have been wonderful if they brought him in. Yes, I think he would have made an impact because he is impressive. He, he's he's got the screen presence, as you said, and he's got the size too. He's got his black belt, of course, but you don't know if that's going to translate well to movie fighting. But it does. It really does well. And even the local stuntmen are taking uh, hits fairly well. So Lao Gawain is choreographing well, but he's working with skill set present already in Turkey. So, I mean, is this the best he's looked on screen, or is this part of many examples of his brawling, like high-skill high, high brawling skills or whatever? This is pretty much par for the course, and that's why I was wondering to what extent uh, Lagarwing really choreographed Arkun's fight scenes, because they look pretty much how I'm used to them looking. Right, which is good, actually. Then Turkey's, uh, Turkey's action standards are quite high like, like that that gritty basher brawler type of action that could be so stiff and crap you know mm-hmm. it, it can be i mean it, it's not automatic to make it come off as powerful just because you're big or anything you know um so so good on him if this is one of many examples because it really does look impressive for this time you know many hong kong movies look you and i could choreograph better brawls than certain hong kong <laughs> movies of this time you know what i mean well, so, so speaking of, of coming across as impressive or unimpressive on screen, I wanted to ask you what you thought of how uh, Bolo comes across in this film. Bolo is fun, and Bolo is who he is. I mean, and, and I'm glad when Bolo gets to act a little bit goofy, as he does here. He's got a lady with him, and he's like, ha, ha, ha, ha, ha, I'm, a, I'm a bad guy. I'm laughing like that. But that footage, man, I mean, I, I think they had so little time to put it together that it feels choreographed. The, the exchanges are pretty good between Kong Do and Carter Wong and Bolo Young, but it feels sloppy and fast. And I don't mean fast in terms of fast and powerful just because it's from the 80s. It just sort of feels like choreographed really quickly on the spot. Um, My theory there is that one production, the Turkish one, spent the time to choreograph it. This one didn't. They just shot a a little bit of it uh, really quickly and didn't um, conceptualize it months ahead or anything like that. So so I I wasn't really impressed with it. It's sort of like, yeah, it's it's okay. I suppose I can't do better. On top of that, I thought that Vola's character is is kind of a wimp despite his physique and, yeah they, they uh, and do take him down but ninja killers take him down also like that wouldn't happen <laughs> it's bolo man <laughs> he's he's always getting beaten and he's getting and he's running away and it's i'm like come on bolo 
you did okay against Bruce Lee. This is. Uh... But you know what? One major weakness of uh, of uh, karate on the Bosporus is, but it's not weakness in terms of um, I didn't dislike it because it picks itself up in uh, when we get action and stuff again. Is the three four scenes of um, of filler geographical filler they want to capture turkey in this one if it's the local production or the hong kong production wanting to catch turkey on film and i know why they're doing it they want to immerse us into the geography and the scenery but it's damn boring (laughs) like it's it's it's for the tourism board it seems like look at turkey it's wonderful let's have a little walk and talk or walk and drive in turkey and uh, those I mean, there may be about seven or eight or ten minutes of that stuff, but I thought that was bad filler, to be honest. But in a very short movie anyway, it's not like I tuned out of it and started hating the movie, but uh, I recognize filler when I see it. That was filler. Captain, we've located Lu Kuhn at last. He has gone to Istanbul. He's now working together with the smuggling ring there. I already know. I've sent all of his information to the Turkish police department. Yeah, it's uh, it is a bit like that, and, you know, there's, he... Inspector Charles romances a couple of different ladies over the course of the film, and that involves a lot of walking through beautiful fields by major landmarks and things. Yeah, but but it sort of picks itself up. When it knows how to sort of inject some cool action and cool violence. I mean, again, exploitation elements, and I'm sure this scene wasn't in the Turkish version. There's a, a raping henchman towards the end of the film that shoots this girl six times in the back and stuff like that. So, uh, but but it's sort of as basically and crudely staged as it all is because you don't see scripts or anything. It kind of made me wince because, dude, stop shooting her. You attempted to rape her, and now you're shooting her in the back. But these movies sometimes weren't made, and I'm talking in general in Hong Kong, too. They didn't feel dangerous. They just were kind of made and shot out onto the market. You know, they made hundreds and maybe thousands of these movies. For a moment like that, for, for me to say, like, yep, yeah, that had some decent edge. That means they, they did. <laughs> they did all right. My, my, my final note on all of this, and you can do whatever notes you want, either from the beginning, middle, or end of the movie. But as impressive as all of the action is before the finale, the, the roof fight finale looks crap. I don't... Uh, the undercranking. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because they decided to go on a damn roof and realize it's we can't do it as well up here. It's dangerous uh-huh. up here. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, when you're running around on roofs, you've got to take it a little bit easier. So yes, I, I suspect that the undercranking was because of that. But yeah, it's not especially... You know, it's a shame because it's been leading up quite well to something uh, good, you know. And maybe uh, you had Lao going there to take the kung fu finale to another level because uh, the hong kong choreographers were good at that but uh, it's the least memorable part of the movie again nothing that made me truly dislike it because the impressive sort of factor and aura of the movie remained like i was truly impressed it's it moves fairly fast it's never truly boring despite the filler aspect you know some these movies sometimes were desperate to have the sellable element in there and to sell the movie via action and so many movies failed and this one regardless of how much Turkey brought and how much Lao Gawing brought with his team. But I don't think there's many Hong Kong stuntmen here involved, so it's certainly just him. But uh, regardless of the mixture, the ratio there between uh, local choreographer and the Hong Kong choreographer, it's still very impressive, except the the ending. I mean, it's not Benny Hill style on the cranky, but it's so noticeable. Mm-hmm. Like it's, uh, so the power sort of gets negated 
in a in in quite a quick fashion but uh, nothing that truly made me dislike it so i was happy happy to take the ninja killer route sans ninjas that sounds great I, I'm, I'm gonna give you the final word on that one because that's on that was great looks like i've nailed you for the second time i'm afraid you're going to have to serve a few more years <laughs> Thank you for introducing me uh, to it. So I'm definitely going to give uh, the Turkish Star Wars uh, a whirl. And uh, I might be wrong because I've seen clips from... I assume you reviewed it on Deja View, right? Turkish uh, Star Wars. Not that one, but I did one on Turkish Star Trek. Right. But I've seen footage, I think, from Turkish Star Wars. And this is like technical geekery. But I remember they uh, have some footage from when they... Uh, destroy Alderaan in the movie when they fire mm-hmm. off the big weapon and the footage is it's clearly the widescreen footage but stretched to hell and back to look very elongated to fit the the square frame that presumably the, the Turkish movie was shot uh, shot in yeah well I mean the thing is that and my and uh, they did that because they they stole uh, a print of Star Wars like overnight or something and then brought it back and the thing is that it's an anamorphic print so you've got a a uh sort of full screen 35 millimeter frame and it was shot anamorphic so it's got you've got a scope or you've got a widescreen sort of image that you've squished onto a regular 35 millimeter frame and then it's projected in the theater back out to its correct aspect ratio but that's not happening when they're snagging the footage for turkish star wars um which is shot uh, full screen, and so you end up with these like anamorphically squished shots of outer space. We we just saw like it's so jarring that whoa <laughs> yeah that's that, that's that's from Star Wars, all right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not... the Death Egg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you like this Turkish Star Trek? Is that uh, lifting anything from anything, or they are just replicating scenes from the TV or uh, TV series or the movies? It does take some uh, footage from um, Star Trek, but not a lot. Uh, okay, as for availability, the closest I found of Ninja Killer in terms of availability is a UK... There are more, but the closest I found when scouring the net is a UK DVD under the series banner of Hong Kong Connection, which uh, they put out a lot of these, uh, so to say, Godfrey Ho, Korean-made martial arts movies, uh, where they just sort of slapped his name on it. Uh, IFD, that is, originally, or ASO Asia. Should be that far back. Uh, but um, so it should be out there cheaply and uh, the, the used copies of it. Uh, like uh, you can get it probably for five pounds in the UK or whatever. But I got to love the tagline on it uh, because they got had to make up something. It's called Ninja Killer. There's, there's no ninjas in it. So they wrote on it, only the very brave or the very foolish would dare to be a ninja killer. So good. <laughs> like or the very foolish. Like you're pretty stupid if you want to be a ninja killer. But but there is another version uh, out there uh, that uh, you um, uh, ripped uh, for me. I couldn't find it in time. It's from Video Asia in the US, and uh, we've said this before, but it's probably still true that Video Asia's um, sort of a legit status is up in the air. Normally, bootleg titles by this company, or what do you know about them? Yeah, no, I, I, they're sort of like gray market skeeviness. I don't know. It's. Uh... They put out stuff and I'm like, no, there's no way. There's no way that you actually have the rights to uh, Cyber Ninja, but no one else is releasing it. Yeah, there's that. I thought I had the movie in my archives here on my hard drives because I found a a Video Asia double bill that had Ninja Killer and Way of Fox on it. And that wasn't true. 
So, so thank God I checked it way before, and you gave me a version of the movie way before. But because the ninja killer on that disc is actually the IFD cut and paste movie, official exterminator, Kill for Love, which is a ninja movie, and they have Stuart Smith in the DVD menu. He is not in it. It's a Mike Abbott movie. So there it is. It, it's not on there. Like Way of Fox, Ninja Killer. It's not. Uh, it's not uh, Kung Fu or Karate on the Bosporus. It the Way of Fox movie is actually a movie called Ghost of the Fox, a Bruce Lee-directed movie from 1990, which I'm keen to see because I haven't seen. Uh, but anyway, the cropped print of Ninja Killer actually looks rather good, all things considered. The colors are decent for its time. It looks very film-like. But I say cropped. But you had another theory there that it possibly wasn't shot in widescreen. Yes, um, because the Turkish film uh, certainly was not. Um, it would have been um, a full-frame film. If I can make a small tangent, actually, when I bought the rights to Turkish Rambo, uh, they sent me a Betacam tape, a uh, master copy, such as it was, of the film that was widescreen. And I thought, this looks really suspicious. And I'm like, wait, why are like tops of heads getting cropped in weird ways and uh discovered that no no it's really it's a it's a full frame film some enterprising owner perhaps thinking that since dvds and widescreen movies were popular matted widescreen bars over the the top and bottom and who needs heads anyway yeah right exactly uh, and so it made the film look terrible. And I was I was biting my nails off because if this was the only master that I could find, I don't know how I didn't know how I was going to release the film. Um, until um, a couple months later, I finally uh, they were able to track down the original full frame version. But these films were all shot full frame, so it seems unlikely that they would have shot uh, the additional Hong Kong footage in scope. No, they always uh, adjusted to the right aspect ratio originally. Again, the Filmark version of Silver Dragon Ninja, their widescreen footage matches the original aspect ratio of Trap, uh, being a 185 movie originally. So they, they were, may, might have been sloppy sometimes, but uh, not that sloppy to have like, it's not like a, uh, you know, Christopher Nolan IMAX movie switching aspect ratio back and forth, you know, <laughs> with, like, mm-hmm. like Batman did or whatever. So uh, so no wonder I didn't feel it looked uh, cropped at all and the fights were all uh, centered and all of that. So because that's how they shot it. So uh, so, so if you can find it, that's, uh, that's a good version of the movie to have. So uh, there we are. Uh, next time, we have nothing to announce as such. Uh, so um, while you absorb what you have just heard, me and Ed are going to make plans for the next uh, double bill, whether it's IFD or Filmark. You know, uh, one Filmark, one IFT, or both IFT and both Filmark. Uh, and uh, maybe we'll tap into some obscure part of the history that I don't uh, know of or beforehand, which is what Ninja Killer represented. But I, I have a sneaky suspicion that we can't leave, uh, can't allow uh, Pierre Kirby to uh, stay off this show. You know, <laughs> we, we, you know, not that we can bring him, bring him in because... The man, the myth, Pierre Kirby. There's a, there's a question up in the air who, who he was and where he is and all of that. But his movies, his legendary movies. we got to touch upon a movie or two that the excellent action hero, Pierre Kirby, uh, starred in at IFD. So um, we'll see if we do the likes of Thunder of Gigantic Serpent or some other cool cop movie that he did. But... Um, it's a suggestion for now, Ed, that we can sort of absorb you and I, what, what Pierre Kirby, when he's supposed to debut on this show, so, and what, and with what movie, so. Yeah, but there it is, uh, let's uh, finish this one off then, this has been the Golden Ninja Podcast on the Podcast on Fire Network website, 
with all our other shows is podcastonfire.com email podcastonfire at googlemail.com reach our various social media by clicking the buttons at the top of our website including our iTunes feed and our Stitcher radio stream feed and uh, my writing and reviews of among other things these two movies uh, Ninja Killer eventually will be a review up on SoGoodReviews.com and also a small video review will be available on SleazyKVideo.com and my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews and uh, finally from my end Jesus Press Molina's blog Golden Ninja Warrior Chronicles will link to because you may, might not update it anymore but the research in English on that website is uh, up there and uh, very much uh, needed and uh, helpful to this day uh, like if i want to tap into something i've forgotten that blog normally contains info about source movies and availability of uh, of uh, things like that that uh, source movies that ifd and filmark put in their movies whether they have ninjas in them or not so valuable research that uh, i recommend you all check out neon harborhead where are you available on the web you can find me and my work at neonharbor.com uh where you'll find um Ninja the Mission Force, my comedy series that sort of spoofs IFD and Filmark by putting ninjas into very uh, strange uh, films. And uh, also Deja Vu, uh, which is my nonfiction series that looks at uh, foreign remakes of popular American films, including uh, Turkish Star Trek, Turkish Godfather, and um, Nigerian Titanic, and a whole bunch of other uh, crazy things. Uh, Just as a noob question, that famous viral footage of the guy dying in slow motion is from a turkish movie is that from a you you probably hopefully know what i'm talking about is that from a, one of these remake type of movies or is that original so so to say? it's uh it's original it's uh called karate girl and my understanding is that it is one of those handful of films that got an english language dub at some point in its history um where you can find it i don't know um but it is out there can, uh, you can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash neon harbor and on Twitter at twitter.com slash neon underscore harbor. All right. So that's it. 10th episode in the bag. And we got to remember to remind you all of something. And that goes as follows. And I cue it the following way. Remember, kids. I am the champion of the ninjas. <laughs> Sure, absolutely. Um, well, you can uh, find my stuff at neonharbor.com, which includes um, a uh, comedy web series called uh, Ninja the Protector, which sort of spoofs the IFD and film Ninja the Mission we- Force, my friend. Wait, wow! I said my own thing wrong. Can I? Can I just re, can I redo that? Yeah, of course. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm just wow. going to tell you a quick story. By the way, I interviewed um, Mike Leader a couple of um, two months ago, or something like uh-huh. that. He he guested on on uh, podcast on fire. He has worked with Joseph Lai. He knows Joseph Lai. He has uh, interviewed Godfrey Ho fairly recently because he's doing an, a documentary called Neon Grindhouse. Mike knows this stuff, but even he gets it wrong because he went to uh, a film market. A while back, and he he went he went up to oh my god, there he is, my old friend Joseph Lai, and someone whispered to him, "It's Godfrey Ho." Oh, 
And then Godfrey, you don't even recognize me, Michael. How do you expect the rest of the internet to essentially do so? So, oh, that's be, funny. Sort of as they've aged, those two, Joseph Lai and Godfrey Ho, they're not totally dissimilar in look. So so there it is. So uh, I'll, I'll either keep this, uh, but uh, you're free to redo the plug here. Okay, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that over again here because I feel like a moron. 